This is an energy sport podcast. Insightful, in-depth and entertaining sports content from Napier to you. Hello and welcome to another energy sport podcast. My name is Jack Donnelly and on this special energy sport broadcast, we are finally able to dedicate a decent amount of time to speaking entirely about the Scottish men's national team and their upcoming European Championship campaign. We have been waxing lyrical about Steve Clark's Boys in Blue since that magical night in Belgrade back in November and our anticipation for the summer's tournament grows with each passing day. But we thought it best to put some of our uh, excitement into this podcast where we are going to be looking at one of the biggest talking points surrounding the squad, that being our perfect potential midfield. Of course, I'm not alone in this discussion. Firstly, I am joined by my co-editor and a man who loved Steve Clark before he made history with the national team. Sean McGill, very good to see you as always. How are we feeling? Thanks, mate. Yeah, I was first on that Steve Clark bandwagon. I'm not having it from anyone else. So, of course not. Yeah, what a man. <laughs> what a man indeed. And Sean and I are also incredibly lucky to be joined by someone familiar to those of you who have listened to Energy Sport podcasts in the past. Uh, who better to have on to chat about the Scotland national team than a man who has dedicated a decent portion of his life to following them home and away and is the founder of the Tartan Scarf uh, website. It's Mr. Gordon Sheik. It's a pleasure to have you back on Energy Sport. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, always great to be talking about the national team. Um, it, it does feel like anticipation is starting to grow for the for the summer. You know, I think as soon as we ticked into this year, you can start to see it on the horizon. And then obviously in January, the official Panini sticker album came out, which I have been filling relentlessly. Um, and I've also been trying to get some swaps going on Twitter as well. So it's hashtag Scott Swap if you want to get involved in trading, if you're as cool as, as cool as I like to think I am. Well, I, I definitely need to jump on that trade. I've got mine here and I'm slowly, <laughs> slowly filling up the pages uh, and I need to definitely jump on that train while I still can. Uh, the Scott Swap has been fantastic and obviously the Panini Stick albums have been brilliant fun. So I take it, since, I'd imagine since that night that Scotland qualified, kind of traffic's kind of steadily and rapidly increased, I suppose, kind of coming your end, your end of the spectrum. Yeah, it's always oh, been brilliant. It's been, it's been absolutely fantastic. And, you know, we've had so many years, you know, two decades plus of just no success to speak of for the men's national team, apart from the occasional moments of a goal here, a result there, but nothing that ever amounted to anything. So the fact that we were able to have that moment in Belgrade, that it, it, it doesn't oversell it to say that it brought a country together in one moment. You know, everybody was celebrating it. Everybody was on social media. Everyone was sharing about it. And now we've got this tournament to look forward to that, yeah, it's it's a really great time to be a Scotland fan, finally. <laughs> I know, it's been, it's been very, too long, too long, we would say. Uh, and we've not actually spoken to you since just before uh, that night in November. So just before we get into the main body of the podcast, just kind of talk us through your own experiences that night, because... Sean and I kind of we we ended up speaking on the phone after full time. I know I was crying. Sean was crying. It was <laughs> a whole host of emotions that night. Oh, it was it was unbelievable. I, I think the only the only disappointment is that it had to happen under COVID times, and it meant that obviously no one could travel to Belgrade, and the fact that we couldn't physically be together to watch the game. I mean, that's the kind of moment that you just think that had the pubs been open, you know, it was, it was a Thursday night you wouldn't have been getting home until about the Sunday, maybe. I mean, it would have been the absolute best night out you've ever had in your life. And 
So to have that taken away from you, that's a real shame. But look, it was, what a moment it was. What an emotional moment. There were certainly tears on my end. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but during the 90 minutes, I don't know that I've ever seen Scotland play a better game away from home. I mean, I felt so good. strangely just really serene during the game that we were going to do this, that we were looking so good. We weren't under pressure. I think as soon as they equalize and it goes to extra time, I think my expectation of us to go through and win suddenly drops off a cliff mm -hmm. because, you know, Clark had made those substitutions to see out the 90 minutes. And then suddenly you've got another half hour and the team just was not set up to go again and attack. And as soon as extra time kicks off, you are thinking penalties are going to be the only shout, only shout here. But then funnily enough, again, once it got to penalties, my confidence went straight back up again because we'd mm -hmm. done it against Israel and the players had shown mm -hmm. they'd done it against Israel. And frankly, those penalties were fantastic. Yeah. You know, <laughs> unsavable. I don't think I've ever felt so numb at football when Jovic scored that header. Like my dad turned to me after about 10, 15 minutes of just complete stillness and silence and went, are you okay? Because I, I thought it was the same as you. I thought that was it gone. I didn't think that we could see out extra time. Especially, I mean, Jack wrote an article about it for the site at the time that it was, this is our first qualification of our lives. We've never seen Scotland at a major tournament. So to see that disappear in, at the last minute, was absolutely heartbreaking. So, um, and your, about your point to do with it being we weren't all together, I think it's almost in a way, if you take the positives out of it, you look back on the stage of life of the sort of lockdown times, and I think that will always be the shining light that even on that one night where we couldn't all be together, it almost felt as though we were. Like it was just, yeah. it was yeah. an absolutely incredible night. Um, and I think for yourself, Gordon, you've got quite a prestigious accolade. I I'm pretty sure you're now the first person to be on Energy Sport and Good Morning Britain in the same week. <laughs> Not sure if anyone else has done that yet. Yeah, that's the that's the double that they all wanted to win. But yeah, I got there first. <laughs> that was that that was absolutely surreal because they they had gotten in touch with me during the day of the game, and they basically said, "Look, if Scotland win, if they qualify, we've got we might want to get you on tomorrow morning." And then the producer was texting me through the game. And in, in the end, I did a sort of little Zoom interview sort of about 20 minutes after full time. And then that got put as part of a package the morning after. So it was quite funny because some, some people saw it the morning after and they were like, that's really amazing that you were still in the same clothes at like six o'clock in the morning. And I was like, no, no, that was, that was filmed last night. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but like the adrenaline of that, the, the sheer emotional hit that I took that night, I couldn't even consider going to bed until about four o'clock in the morning. Mm. I was just sitting there. I was scrolling Twitter. I was watching videos. You see the videos from inside the dressing room and from people all around the country. It was, like I said, it was a moment that it brought the country together. No, absolutely. And I think I was, I was the exact same as you. I, funnily enough, was told that I had to self-isolate on the same day. So I, <laughs> my, my flatmate tested positive <laughs> for the virus on the day. And I was obviously having to deal with that as well as... Your the English nervous. flatmate as well. My English flatmate, yeah, so that, that just added on to the, the sense of dread that I was feeling. But as, so, as soon as uh, Mitrovic stepped up, I just looked and I just had this smile on my face because I just had it in my mind that uh, David Marshall was going to save it and he leaps to his left and does and jumped up, danced about my room for a bit and sank to my knees and started crying. It, it, was, it, was, a, it was an odd moment and I don't really know if anyone apart from Scotland could potentially give you so many emotions in the one in the one night concerning football it was something special i'll tell you yeah yeah 
yeah, a, a, a moment that will live for our entire lives. I mean, I, I, I compared it to, I mean, in terms of like sporting memories for me, one of the only other ones I could compare it to was when, when Andy Murray won Wimbledon for the first time. Um, me and a couple of guys I work with, we didn't, um, we're obviously still up in Scotland. We, we thought that, you know, if we can't be at centre court at Wimbledon, where's the second best place in the world we could be to watch it? So we drove to Dumblain and we were in the sports centre in Dumblain where like the world's media had descended to watch the local town watching Andy Murray winning Wimbledon. So we're there basically in the front row of this sports centre with all the world's media <laughs> focusing their cameras on us. And we watched Andy Murray win Wimbledon there. And that was, that was one of the best sporting memories of my life. But the Belgrade easily tops it. Has to be has to be taught for me. Has to be taught for me. I can't see anything pushing past that for a very long time. I'm sure Sean's the same. Absolutely. Uh, so I should probably go in depth for the listeners about what we are actually going to be doing on the rest of this podcast. So the eventual Euros squad has been a fairly prominent talking point for anyone involved in football and concerning Scotland specifically ever since we qualified. Uh, but very few people actually seem to be able to agree on exactly what our midfield should look like when we kick off against uh, the Czech Republic on the 15th of June. Uh, we're assuming, I'd imagine, that Clark is probably going to stick to the 5-3-2 system that's yielded the most positive results so far, but we do know that has room, to manu- room for manoeuvrability in it. Potentially one of, the, one of the strikers coming back, Gordon, as you said just before we started recording and kind of acting as a, as a fourth midfielder. So what we are going to be doing is looking through the midfield options that have been in squads previous that would realistically be in the squad regardless and potentially on the fringes, and then chat about some players who might not have already received a call-up and may well do so in March as World Cup qualifiers, putting them more in line for a chance at the tournament in the summer. So if it sounds good to you guys, we are going to kick things off with a kind of midfield that ran the show on the night in Belgrade, the three-man midfield consisting of John McGinn, uh, Callum McGregor and Ryan Jack. And for me personally, if I'm picking one name out of the three that I would have in any football team, not just a Scotland (laughs) team, but more specifically a Scotland team because he does as a wonder, is John McGinn. I, I think he's absolutely sensational. And I think he has to be the first name on the team sheet, regardless of who we play. And I, I don't know if you guys had similar thoughts. Yeah, I would, I would 100% agree with that. I think McGinn is, as, as much as a character and a personality as a player, he impresses me so, so much. I mean, you look at the, look at the trajectory he's taken in his career, you know, playing at St Mirren, you know, winning a League Cup there, and then making a move to Hebs, you know, moving up to a, bit, a, a fairly bigger club historically, winning a Scottish Cup there, playing in the Europa League, then going down to the English Championship with Aston Villa, taking that step up in his stride, then going to the Premier League. And I mean, every single move he's made has been a step up and he's taken it in his stride and he's developed his game. And he's so, he's, he's just impressed everywhere he's gone. And now that he's added goals to his game, um, there's no stopping him really. He's, yeah, great player for us. He's but, absolutely fantastic. Sorry, Jack. I was just—he's been fantastic in this sort of forward role for us, as as this sort of for this forward of the midfield three. And I was just wondering—we've seen this season that he's got that versatility in his locker. The fact that in these sort of bigger games for Aston Villa, he's sat alongside Douglas Louise as the six. How much of a benefit do you think that is, Gordon, to to Scotland to have a player who can do both of those roles? Can go forward, can join the attack, but can also help in sort of screening the defence as well. 
Yeah, look, I, I think it's hugely beneficial. I mean, I don't know if you guys at home have actually tried to put together a 23-man squad for the Euros in the summer. I mean, I'm too bearing, in mind th- bearing in mind three <laughs> of those players have to be goalkeepers. I mean, there are some incredibly difficult decisions coming up for Steve Clark. And I think one of the biggest things that can play into a player's benefit for getting in the squad is versatility like that. You know, how many different systems can you fit into? How many different positions can you excel in? And that's certainly something that John McGinn's got in his locker. I mean, he's certainly, he added the attacking side to his game really since he went to Aston Villa, you know, making these driving late runs into the box, snaffling goals. He then brought that to Scotland in the Euros qualifying campaign. Um, and, you know, yeah, the fact the fact that he can also sit deeper is it's certainly another strength to his bow. I mean, I, I love seeing him play play higher up, you know, but if, if if we need him a bit deeper, depending on who we're playing against, or or if you want to change the shape during a game a game as well and shuffle him about the pitch, I think he's got that flexibility in his in his locker for sure. I think it may be well needed as well because it's been fairly well noted that Ryan Jack hasn't exactly had the cleanest spell of health throughout this season. He's kind of been on and off the treatment table. I think he was left out of Rangers game tonight on recording against uh, Royal Antwerp in the Europa League. So it's, it's hard to say whether you would definitely nail him on to start, but I think would, would, would he definitely be a start, Gordon, if he, if he was to maintain fitness and perhaps partner either one of McGinn or McGregor in that kind of deeper line pair? I would certainly like to see Ryan Jack starting for Scotland, for sure. I think... If, obviously, we're, we're going to go through a lot of different midfield options tonight. But if there's one thing we do maybe lack, it is naturally defensive-minded midfielders. And I think Ryan Jack is certainly one of them. I think you look at how he's impressed, not just with Rangers in the Scottish Premiership, but really it's those games in the Europa League. You know, when they've gone away from home to maybe bigger teams, more prestigious teams, and Rangers have gotten some phenomenally good results. And the nature of those matches are probably more akin to the sort of games that Scotland are going to be playing against when Scotland are the underdogs. So I think if Ryan Jack's bringing that kind of form, I think the fact he's, he's back fit now hopefully means he can get a few games in his, in his, uh, under his belt between now and March, and he can just continue that place in the team in March. Um, and yeah, I would certainly like to see him, see him starting for sure. Yeah, not to just completely copy what Gordon said, but I do agree with him in the fact that um, Scotland don't really have an out-and-out number six. And I'm not sure that Ryan Jack really is either. I mean, Stephen Davis usually plays behind him for, yeah. for Rangers. But if there was one who could fit the mould of a number six, it would be Ryan Jack who could do that the best, I think. And if you take that out of the Scotland midfield, you would just be a bit worried about players getting caught higher up the pitch or getting sort of lured into attacks. I think he's sort of got that cool head, both on and off the ball, to just say, I'm going to sit here, I'm going to show this up. And I think that's a fantastic asset. And Momo need against some very, very good opposition yeah. at the Euros. Especially, I think, when you look at you look at the shape that we're playing with and the width in our team is going to be coming from the wing-backs. You're going to be looking at Andy Robertson and what will probably be Stephen O'Donnell on the right side trying to push high and stay wide. You are going to need those two, defend, those two sort of more sitting midfielders if it's Cal McGregor and Ryan Jack you are going to need them to sit deeper and provide that defensive solidity, you know, so you're not really going to be looking for them to push forward. You're going to be looking for McGinn and the wingbacks to get forward. So I think you're absolutely right about not wanting players that are going to get caught upfield. And would it be definitely Callum McGregor that we'd want to be in alongside them? Because Celtic have not had a great season. That, that's been obvious just in the gulf of points that they sit behind Rangers at the moment. But Sean, you've kind of spoken that McGregor's kind of come across as a bit more of a kind of 
brighter spark for Celtic in kind of troubling times, I suppose, for them just in a deeper role. And we've, we always have conversations over at Energy Sport about what Callum McGregor does off the ball and is just industrious kind of nature to his game. So would he kind of be the, the legs of that partnership, you would almost say, just scurrying about and retrieving the ball before shipping it up the field and let Jack do the real kind of tough defensive work? I mean, like you said there, it's been a really tough season for Celtic, but I don't think Callum McGregor is one of those players who you could pin that on. I mean, mm. Neil Lennon sort of enjoyed uh, pointing the finger to blame at his players, but I, I, really, I really think Callum McGregor has been immune from that. I think he's been had a pretty solid season considering all the troubles at Parkhead. And I think that, I mean, we sort of questioned Callum McGregor before this game, how, does he really turn up for Scotland? But in Belgrade... I've never seen a better Callum McGregor performance. I thought it was absolutely outstanding. Every interception, every tackle, every good forward pass seemed to be from Callum McGregor. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was absolutely outstanding that, that night. Um, so I think based on that alone, I think you've got to keep him in the sort of midfield trio, trio um, as we head into this. Um, but in terms of talking about Celtic, there's other bright sparks. David Turnbull's another one who we're probably going to talk about at some point in this podcast. So how you fit these talented players in for men, it's a tough one. No, definitely. I think it's been t- it's been tougher for me, kind of just nailing down it because we do see it. We've we've seen that three, and it's what it worked so so well that night and in games leading up to it. But I, su- I suppose, Gordon, with the three that we've mentioned, would we kind of expect to see that almost be the predicted kind of starting midfield for Clark and not not even Euros in the in the World Cup qualifiers coming up in March? Or do you think he would potentially want to? switch things about a little bit. Yeah, I think you have to look at that as being right now the preferred starting 11 for Steve Clark. You know, I think the fact that we've got the Euros to come in the summer, you almost have to consider our squad sort of midway through a cycle, effectively. Like, you know, now isn't really the time to be experimenting, trying new things, ripping up the system, especially given that it's been successful. And I think, you know, certainly I'm sure this is something that Sean and I discussed on the podcast back in November that, there's a lot to be said for consistency of selection. And I think the more players play together, especially at international level, the better they become as a team. You know, I think you look at Stephen O'Donnell as as such a perfect example of that. You know, here's a guy that was maybe, he took a bit of criticism in in his early caps, but the more he's played for Scotland, the more games he's got, the better he's got. And I think he's he's been better with every single cap he's had. And that's just, that speaks to the, the importance of, getting that consistency of selection, you know, that players play better together. So I think certainly if we're keeping the system the way it is, then you really want to try and keep the, mid, the, the starting 11 as close to consistent as possible. And with that in mind, uh, another player that does kind of come into question a bit with that would be Ryan Christie. He's obviously scored the goal on the night, that famous night, but was kind of playing as a second striker, a shadow striker, but obviously can do the job as an attacking midfielder. So do you, th- do you think it could be a case of if we do stick with the system and may get changed a little bit, we might see McGinn push further back, sacrificing one of uh, Jack and McGregor and Christie kind of as that more advanced role behind potentially a pairing of Dykes and Lee Griffiths or Ryan Fraser? I think you certainly, you certainly could see that. You know, I, I think something that when I look at this Scotland side, you know, I mentioned it earlier, the, the flexibility that we've got in the side is actually quite incredible. You know, the fact that you've got a guy like Ryan Christie, who earlier in Clark, Clark's reign, when we were playing more with a sort of 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3 effectively, 
Ryan Christie was sort of positioned out on that right wing, cutting in on his left foot, where he was very successful, scored a goal in uh, in Cyprus from that position, set up a couple of goals against San Marino at home from there. You know, and then you're right, when we move to this new system, he's he is almost playing like a shadow striker. And I think that position is actually absolutely pivotal to get the best out of Lyndon Dykes. You know, the amount of times we've watched players play as the lone striker for Scotland over the years, and whoever it is, if it's Kenny Miller, Stephen Fletcher, etc., you know, if they don't have a teammate within 30 yards of them, they're not going to be successful. And even if they win a flick on, they win a knockdown, they've got no one to play it off. So the fact that we've had someone, either it be Ryan Christie or Ryan Fraser, staying close to the striker, that's been a huge part of our success in our in our recent games. So I don't know, as, as much as I would like to see Ryan Christie maybe deeper in the midfield, I think he brings so much going forward as well. You know, his crossing, his passing, his shooting, he brings so much in an attacking sense that I, I'd, I'd love to see that as well. When I was talking about Celtic players who've been in for a lot of criticism and saying that Callum McGregor is immune, Ryan Christie certainly hasn't been. I think he's been a, a player that has frustrated Celtic fans a lot this season. But I think I think that Celtic have struggled so much that Ryan Christie almost feels like he's got to be the one to pull off the spectacular. He's got to be the one who drags them out of the mud. And I think that's why he's got a horrendous shot profile this season. You look at where um, Ryan Christie takes his shots and how he's taking those shots. It's very, very poor. Um, but I do think that's off the, the sort of pressure on his back. He feels that he's got to do the spectacular. And I think that with better coaching, which I believe he would get from Steve Clark, he won't feel the need to do these sorts of things. He won't. He's in a system that he knows his role more than it's not just go and score a 25-yard screamer. It's more sort of concise than that. Um, so I think that Ryan Christie for Scotland and Ryan Christie that we've seen this season for Celtic are two sort of different animals, really. No, I definitely agree. I think you're absolutely right in that he does kind of come under a lot of criticism for Celtic and has done for a while, but he does kind of tend to show up in the, in the biggest of occasions. I mean, it wasn't just his, his goal that he scored. I mean, that night he had like two or three opportunities after that just to, to end, it, end the game. Obviously, it didn't pan out that way, but you just saw him getting into these positions off of Dykes' fantastic hold-up play and his just uh, combination. So I think you're absolutely right, Gordon. I think he would kind of be the, the the first choice as the second striker, I suppose you can say. Uh, let's have a quick... I guess you've got to also think that he's just... Um, he's fine for Scotland for life after that interview in Belgrade. I just think that <laughs> yeah. you know, he, he can do no wrong in my eyes. It was just one of yeah. the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And to I see a player again. speak with that sort of emotion yeah. and yeah I'm the same it just sort of uh, brought the tears back on just to see a player um, just so delighted and so I mean physically exhausted emotionally exhausted but just absolutely delighted to get his country to mm-hmm. a major tournament he felt um, he certainly felt what we were feeling at that time 100%. You know, it, it was he was the fan on the sideline right there um, although what is crazy though sometimes you know you look back on these sort of almost sliding doors moments of the sort of what could have been what might have been Fact is, you know, you're looking at the games that Scotland had played before that playoff final, it was Ryan Fraser who'd been the second striker. Yeah. And had Ryan Fraser been fit, I think Ryan Christie would have been starting on the bench mm-hmm. in Belgrade. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of those things, isn't it? That Ryan Fraser's relationship with Lyndon Dykes had shown a lot of promise, you know? I mean, I, th- I think when it comes to those two, I mean, I don't know where, how you can fit Christie and Fraser into the same side. If we're playing in this system, um, maybe something we'll come on to is that 
something that I have felt is that there's a real need now for Scotland to create a plan B. I mean, I think the system that we have right now, it's incredibly solid. We're never going to get beaten heavily using this system. But I think when we concede, as you saw in the two Nations League games we played after the playoff final, if a game goes against us using this system, I don't know how well it's set up to come from behind and dominate and create chances and overturn a deficit. So I think we do need to have a plan B and maybe maybe going back to that 4-3-3, for example, and that's perhaps where maybe Fraser and Christie could fit in on opposite wings, perhaps. A man who could potentially act as an option for one of those uh, wing slots if we were to revert to that 4-3-3 as a plan B is Stuart Armstrong. And he's kind of been in and about squad. He's not seen a bulk of playtime, obviously. He's kind of spent a fair bit of time kind of licking his wounds after that infamous, infamous day no. in June 2017 <laughs> that just about ruined my entire summer. But we, we, we've spoken enough about him there. I think I think his versatility kind of speaks volumes for his likelihood to be included in a squad for this competition because he can play centrally, can play kind of centrum centrum a bit more attacking wise, and then he's played out in the left a fair bit for Southampton this season. So how how do we see his involvement uh, kind of coming up to the next batch of games and then beyond? I have no idea. I, I really genuinely struggle to know where he fits into the midfield and in what combination of players. But I have absolutely certainty that he will be in the squad. He has to be in the squad. I mean, we have a lot of players and we have a lot of midfielders. So we're fortunate enough now that we can look at who's on form, who's not on form, who's bringing confidence to the team. Sure, Armstrong is having a very, very good season for Southampton. Now, obviously, the last month or so, Southampton have sort of gone off the boil a little bit. But they've been having a very good season as well. And I've no doubt about it that they'll turn it back around again because Ralph Hasenhutl is a very, very good coach. And Stuart Armstrong has been a, a pretty pivotal part of that Southampton team, the success they've been having. So I have absolutely no doubt he will be in the Euro squad, 100%. Um, where he fits in, what do you guys think? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like you're saying there, he's played a lot. It's majority of the time he's been wide for Southampton. So, and we don't play with winners. So that's obviously... A sort of mark against them there, but like you said, Ralph Hasenhut is a very good coach, and it's quite a tactically and physically demanding system that they play. And if it sort of shows that, I think there was maybe question marks about Stuart Armstrong when he went down to the Premier League. Like, is he? He's a he's a good player for Celtic. We've all seen his talents, but would he be that sort of like a, a top ten Premier League team player? I think we've seen that he definitely, definitely is, and I think that um, there's no chance that he misses out. But like Gordon says doesn't immediately fit into the system so it'd maybe be injuries it would maybe be sort of you're chasing a game and you want that little bit of magic on I think he could I think maybe you know we mentioned earlier about potentially playing with that almost like sort of the box midfield of your sort of two midfield defensive midfield screeners if that's McGinn and Jack and then two sort of free eights that kind of have a bit more license to drift wide find pockets of space sort of drift in between the lines if that was Stuart Armstrong and Ryan Christie or Stuart Armstrong and John McGinn, you could see that working so long as they can actually get find space in between the lines and so long as they can get close enough to support the, the central striker. I think his inclusion, his eventual inclusion in this squad will just paint a fairly poetic picture of a Friday night at, uh, at Wembley in June and he is the man to win us the game. I think that would just put a lot of... <laughs> A lot of demons to bed, and I think all would be forgiven at that point. 
definitely would. I'm, 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 to be to be fair, look, 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 quick, look. You can't sum up a whole match in one split second. I honestly, that the, the the narrative of Stuart Armstrong from that game it breaks my heart every time I see mm. it because it was a it was a very very difficult game. One split second, and to be fair, Craig Gordon could have come for the ball. So you know, <laughs> let's just <laughs> redemption for Armstrong. We'll start it here. To go that's, that's where it begins. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's a couple of other kind of more deeper line players you would say that have been in and about squads and one of them certainly has had a fairly important role to play, especially when it comes to the penalty shootouts that Scotland remain unbeaten in and that that's Kenny McLean. Now, I don't know, this just might be a personal thing, but any time that I see Kenny McLean coming on, I just don't really have much of a reaction. And I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what that is and I just... I'm not entirely. I've never, I've never been entirely convinced by him. But obviously, Steve Clark does see something in him, and he has been a very dependable player for Scotland in campaigns and games past, and obviously stepped up when it when it really mattered most against uh, both Israel and Serbia. So, what 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 do you guys think? I mean, Norwich are doing very well. Uh, there's their kind of form of the championship has talk of Grant Hanley receiving another call up for. Uh, Marches matches uh, as a centre back, and I would imagine Kenny McLean would almost kind of come part and parcel with Grant Hanley. But would we potentially look aside and look look elsewhere from McLean, or would we still want to depend on him come the summer? I guess you would think we might we might get a penalty. You <laughs> 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 get more penalty shots if we get in the group. You've got to have him in there. Um, and also, I think I, I do get your point. I don't think Kenny McLean is the most sort of. Uh, headline grabbing or he's not going to sort of get you off your seat but he's just a very very competent footballer I think I think he's good technically he reads the game well um, and he's maybe not going to sort of put in this sort of amazing performance that we saw from McGregor and Belgrade or he's not going to get in goals that John McGinn does but in terms of just sort of bringing a cool head onto the park with the last sort of 10-15 minutes I know it didn't go that way in Belgrade but that was a, a set piece like I just think that um Kenny McLean is a, an experienced head to have around and a, a good footballer as well. So, yeah, I would I would totally agree with that. Um, and also, you got to he he will be bringing a fair amount of confidence into any Scotland squad as well. You know, the fact that he is a Scotland player who's playing in a team that are fighting to win a league title and they are they're flying at the top of the table in Norwich City. So, yeah, I, I I agree with you. You know, you don't necessarily maybe think of him doing things that will get you off your seat, but so long as he doesn't, he won't give you a heart attack either. You know, he's not going <laughs> to give the ball away. He's not going to play a suicide pass. He will come on. He'll recycle possession. He'll play calm football. And sometimes that is just what you need in a game. So I fully expect him to be to be in the squad. Um, I think he'll definitely be in the squad for March. Um, but yeah, looking ahead to the summer, you, you're you're probably expecting him to be involved as well. Could you say the same of a man who is technically playing one place above Kenny McLean in the English football system? That being. John Fleck of Sheffield United. I mean, <laughs> they've not had a very good season to put it to put it in the most basic of terms, and Fleck just kind of looks a bit disheartened and just kind of put out this season. I don't I don't know what it is, and I don't really can't really explain what's happened with Sheffield United. But I, I know the two of you had a kind of conversation on the interview that we did back in November about how much you factor in um, club form and club uh, results going into a Scotland 
squad, an international squad. So, but for a, for a player like Fleck who hasn't been in the Scotland setup for a a massive amount of time, he's he's had uh, single digit caps. So, would he potentially be sacrificed for someone new, or again, would we kind of see him in and then depend on him if need be? Yeah, I think for John Fleck, I think he's probably the one that you worry for the most in terms of keeping his place in the squad. I think, you know, I mentioned earlier like about consistency of selection and I think sometimes you do maybe go for the guy who's tried and trusted at international level, even if it's not necessarily working for him at club level. I mean, I remember there was times, there were seasons past when Alan Hutton would play more games in a season for Scotland than he would for Aston Villa, which was bonkers, but he turned up and he did well for us. So he was in the squad. Um, John Fleck, you're right. I don't know that he's got the kind of the money in the bank effectively as a Scotland player to guarantee that he retains his place. And now you then you start to look at the club form and compared to the club form of some of his peers and Sheffield United, you hit the nail on the head. I, I, I can't diagnose what's gone wrong with him this season, but maybe it's second season syndrome in the Premier League, but they have had a terrible year of it and just nothing's gone right for them. So with that in mind as well, is it then also, is it fair to bring a guy like that into the Scotland squad when if he's struggling at club form, his mentality is going to be difficult, his confidence is going to be low, you're going to put him on a higher on a pedestal effectively for playing in the Scotland team, a bigger platform. Is that the best thing for him? Maybe not. I think when you're talking about the conversation we had in November, Jack, we were, we were sort of looking at the likes of Northern Ireland and saying they picked pretty much the same squad, the same starting 11. They all know each other. They all get, get to know each other. And that's how they've yielded results that are far beyond what that country realistically should be capable of. I mean, um, European championships and the like. So I think, but and I've I've said as well that I mean Declan Gallagher's not had a brilliant season at Motherwell. Um, they're obviously struggling towards the bottom end of the Premiership, but he's been absolutely fantastic for Scotland. So I don't see any reason. Obviously, he's injured just now. Hopefully, his fitness is is back up in time. Um, but I don't see much reason to get rid of Je- uh, Declan Gallagher. Grant Hanley's maybe knocking the door. That's a separate conversation. With John Fleck, I just think that there's so much talent in the Scotland midfield. There's so many options that. He can't really afford to have such a poor season and such a poor side. So I completely agree with Gordon. If there was one player from uh, the most recent squad who I'd be worried about dropping out, it certainly would be John Fleck. Now, we've almost kind of reached the end of the road with the kind of midfield options that have been in squads previous, but there's one that we've missed out and that we're, we need to kind of come to and have an have a almost entirely separate conversation about in the sense that essentially split between two different positions for club and country and there's an argument being made especially recently that he should be playing his club position for his country of course I'm meaning Scott McTominay as a right-sided centre-back he's grown into that role very well under Steve Clark and he's he's done a very good job but as we've seen in the past few months at Manchester United in in a midfield role he's also begun to add goals to his game I think it was three and three at one point in January, and then I think overall it was six and fourteen. Sean, I think that was the number. Yeah, that's right. That we said. So it kind of comes down to a case of kind of Clark making the, making his mind up. Does he push someone out of that midfield three that's done well in the past for McTominay, who's improved on that role at club level, and it's also a case of finding 
a centre back that would replace him. So I'm I'm just curious to find out uh, your thoughts on where we could see McTominay come June Garden. Well, I will start by saying I love Scott McTominay. I love him as a player. I love him for Scotland. I think he is he's an, an intelligent player. I think his physical attributes are incredible. I think his technical attributes are incredible. You look at his range of passing, the way that he can just sort of like whip a sort of pass right up into the striker's feet from 30 yards away. His crossing is actually remarkably good. Um, I think it was in, in Israel in the, in the Nations League when I think McGinn had a very good header that was saved well and that was from a McTominay cross where McTominay had sort of pushed almost into that sort of the half channel that David Beckham used to occupy a lot of the time where he could play those really early crosses and sort of curl them in. I mean... <sighs> Again, you know, we, 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 we talked earlier, you know, we were talking about Ryan Christie and some of other players about the flexibility that we have in our team. And Scott McTominay has flexibility for days. I mean, there's a lot that I like about Scott McTominay playing at right centre-back. You know, I think that he offers you, he offers you an extra outlet when you've got the ball, when you're in possession, the way that he can sort of step up out of defence and sort of give you an overload in midfield. So sort of almost no matter how many midfielders the opposition team are playing with, he can suddenly give you an outnumber and give you a free pass that they can then get the ball moving up the other side. And he's got the technical abilities to do that. Um, I think the bigger question about him going into midfield is who you replace him with at right centre-back. Because you saw it was the Nations League game um, in Slovakia when, when Andy Constantine played at right-sided centre-back. You saw the challenge of when you put a left-footed player in that position they're always naturally going to want to go back onto their left-hand side and bring the ball into the middle. And when you've got a guy like Stephen O'Donnell or Liam Palmer who are pushing high, you take away that avenue of getting the ball up wide on the wing to them if you've got a left footer at right-sided centre-back. So I think certainly, you know, the, the games we've watched Scott McTominay play recently for Scotland, I think you've seen the best of him for Scotland and also some of the worst of him for Scotland in terms of playing in that defensive position. Like I said, I think this passing's phenomenal. His crossing's excellent when he's pushed up high. But then the flip side of that is against Israel, he got exposed 1v1, he got sold a dummy, they scored. So I guess you just have to sort of weigh up what it is you're getting from Scott McTominay where you put him in each different position. But I do like a lot of what I see when he's, when he's at the right side of the centre-back. I guess what I'd have to say are just sort of building, if I can, on Gordon's points. So the first one about sort of just loving Scott McTominay, um, I completely agree with that. And the term, when you look back at that game in Belgrade, it was heartbreaking to see Scott McTominay lose his man for that corner. And yeah. you don't want to, like Graham, um, sorry, Gordon was saying with uh, the uh, not blaming Stuart Armstrong, that's how you, I, I felt about Scott McTominay as well. In that split second, you don't want to sort of vilify anyone, especially a young player like that. But he did sort of, it hurt, it hurt a lot. Um, but to see him step up and probably take the best penalty out of the mm-hmm. five, the five yeah, very good definitely. penalties, he absolutely slammed it into that bottom left-hand corner. Same against Israel. Same against Israel. Yeah, yeah exactly. Perfect Just to penalty. have that confidence Perfect. to do that um, after potentially costing your, your team such a massive opportunity says a lot about the character of him as well as his sort of technical ability. And going on to... The other point about who do you replace him with, we're able to do this podcast about midfielders because we have so many options there. Um, I don't fancy doing a podcast about our options at right <laughs> centre-back. I don't think that's a good idea. I mean, like you said, most of the our sort of talented defenders are left-footed. And then if you're looking at the right-sided ones, 
none of them can really don't have great passing ability like we're talking about with Scott McTominay. I mean, Declan Gallagher, not great. Grant Hanley, not great. Ryan Porteous, that struggles with that. Jack Hendry, Jack Hendry maybe, maybe. But, but yeah, but that's, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's a separate conversation, but it kind of feeds into this when we're talking about, yes, Scott McTominay is playing fantastically in his midfield role for Man United, but I don't see a better option at right centre-back, especially when you do need somebody to bring the ball out. He does that so fantastically. So for just now, I'd have him stay at right centre-back if a good option comes up in the next few months. I don't really see it, but if it does, then maybe that's something we can look at. But for just now, I think he's got to stay where he has been for Scotland. But I think as I think as well though the the other thing about about the flexibility point is that if we do develop a sort of Plan B tactical system, you'll be able to switch to that on the fly with Scott McTominay. You know, if you've got him at right side of centre back, you then move him up into midfield, and he can change the shape of the team instantly and excel in in either position. So you don't even need to use a substitute necessarily to to change the shape of the team. No, I completely agree. I think in any case, he he has to play in either role. Because I think when you think back to that night, the, the, the most prominent pictures you see are of him with the, sh- the solitaire draped across his shoulders, just with the most kind of joyous and tearful expression on his face. And you think that that's exactly what it means right there. That coupled with the, the Ryan Christie interview, that, that, those are the pictures that you're just going to remember. And it speaks a lot about his personality and his drive and his kind of mental state to be able to go on and take that penalty and put us in such a good position. So I think he does have to play in the team in either role. And I would, ha- I would be happy to see him in either, to be honest, because yeah. like you said, Gordon, we have seen the worst of him for Scotland in that role, but we have also seen the best. And I think as a player, he will mature and he will become more comfortable with that role the more he mm-hmm. plays in it. And I think playing in that role in March is going to have a massively positive effect on how he could yeah. potentially play in that role come June. So... I'm I'm, exci- and, I'm excited. And, I'm excited to see. And him. to be to, and to, and to be fair though, look, look when I when I said when I said the worst of him, you know, any number of centre backs could have been sold that dummy. 100%, you know, it's, yeah. it's just the fact it was him that he went past. You know, that's not to say that he had a poor game. And to be fair, he has been getting better every game that he's played at centre back. Although, do you want to hear my my theory that I you talk about sliding doors moments again? The theory that I will take to my grave is that I don't think that Scotland would have bedded in that system, the sort of the three at the back, five, three, two system. I don't think we would have done that as well if there'd been fans in the stadium from the beginning. The fact that we were able to do that in empty stadiums where you look back to the first Nations League game back at the start of the season when we drew against Israel at home, that was the first game. It, you know, I remember seeing that team sheet being like, Scott McTominay, centre-back. Oh, that's a, that's a bold one. If there'd been 30, 40,000 fans inside Hamden that night, every shaky moment being greeted by, oh, grunts and groans, mm-hmm. I think it, I do not think we would have bedded in that system as well as we did. But now that we've done it, the fans can see what we're trying to do. They can see what the system is, how it works, and they'll get behind it. But I don't think it would have been as easy. But I do think this talking point is going to be one of the biggest ones this Scotland squad has heading into the Euros where because if, if he continues to play how he does I mean it's a bit of a sort of arbitrary thing but if you're looking at say the English Premier League sort of the top of league football Scott McTominay is the highest ranked player in the Scotland squad in terms of the league table mm-hmm. so if you've, he's got to be there somehow he's doing very well in a midfield role so we will keep talking about it I think but um, I think we've sort of come to the consensus that right now the right answer is right centre-back Although I think 
I think we're incredibly lucky, the fact that we've got three World Cup qualifiers in March, that that gives opportunities, particularly the fact that we've got a home game against the Faroe Islands in those three games, that if you do want to try something a little bit different, you've got a competitive game to try it in, you know, and I think I think that can be a real benefit for us. And again, as well, the fact that the players, they know fine well that March is their very last chance to impress Steve Clark face-to-face. So... I, I, I think we're going to get some decent results in March because of that. I, no, I completely agree. I think we are going to get some good results, and I think that's kind of a testament to not, not only the fact that they want to impress Steve Clark just in the run-up to Euros, but just the kind of sense of togetherness in the squad that Clark's built. Because if you think in the, in the run-up to the, the playoff final, there were half the squad turned up two or three days early to, to start training, and they were all so, so keen to push this through. And I think it's all going to be the same. They're all going to be so keen to take it a step further and get off to a good start and qualifying for the World Cup. And then they're not exactly going to want to take their foot off the gas come June. So I think I think players are really going to start up in performance levels, especially on a Scotland stage uh, in the run-up. And I'm really excited for it. But we, we're going to talk about some players now who have been consistently impressive at club level and who have not yet had the chance to impress uh, Steve Clark face-to-face in the sense that they've not yet received an inclusion in a Steve Clark squad and Sean I'm going to bring it back to your point about some shining stars in a, in a fairly drab Celtic team the, the brightest of them all has been David Turnbull having, having made his move from Motherwell last summer uh, obviously a year later after suffering that injury but he, he's been absolutely fantastic like he, like he was left out of the team by Neil Lennon for unknown reasons in, a, in, the, in the first half of the season I'm really Really not sure as to why he didn't get a more significant run of games earlier on. But ever since he's come in, Celtic have just looked so much more positive going forward. And I think there's a number of highly highly rated attacking players that you could consider for a Scotland midfield. But I would still put David Turnbull at the top of the list. Yeah, I think that... I mean, I'm going to say it again, we've spoken about it so many times tonight, it's, it's another great character to have in the squad, like a, a player that you genuinely feel a sort of affinity with, which has maybe been harder as Scotland have sort of struggled over the years. I mean, David Turnbull is a, a young player who burst onto the scene, um, scored a, a boatload of goals in that sort of second half of the season for Motherwell, was on the brink of that move to Celtic, like you said, and then had that terrible injury. And I think a lot of credit goes to Motherwell for that great documentary they put out on their YouTube because you got to see the resilience of it, you got to see the character. He was just, he was gutted, but he was trying to sort of have a laugh and make the best of this uh, really tough situation for him. And the fact that he's gone to Celtic and he's by far their best player this season shows that, like I said, the character of him, um, he's a goal threat, which is something that we still maybe sometimes lack. His set-piece delivery is absolutely fantastic. Um, I know him and Lee Griffiths sort of share it whenever he's on the park, but when he does get the chance to do it, David Turnbull does it very, very well. Um, so he's a very exciting option. I think he'd be more sort of the McGinn-type role in terms of further forward. Um, I know sometimes Ryan Christie's ahead of him for Celtic, but I think that if David Turnbull was to be in this current Scotland system, it would be as the sort of furthest forward out of the three midfielders. Yeah, I think you look at David Turnbull right now, his his form, especially since he broke into the team in about December time, um, it makes him absolutely impos- impossible to ignore for Steve Clark. I think the fact that we're obviously going to look at 
a bigger squad in March. You know, the fact that it's a triple header, we're, pro- we're probably going to be looking at about 28, 29-man squad. Mm-hmm. I think it makes it absolutely, there's no doubt in my mind that David Turnbull will be in the squad in March. You'd fully expect him to see him make his debut, as we said, maybe maybe against the Faroe Islands at home. Um, I think certainly, you know, to build on what Sean was just saying there about, you know, his resilience coming back from the injury, I think that that's actually something that you look at, you look up and down the Scotland squad and there's so many eh, comeback stories, but just like so many guys that they've never, they've, they've not done it the easy way and they've come mm. up the hard way and they've had to kind of fight for everything they've got. You know, you look at, you know, obviously the Andy Robertson story is so well known about getting released from Celtic, going down to Queen's Park and then winning the Champions League with Liverpool, you know, but then even beyond that as well, you know, Declan Gallagher, sort of a latecomer to, international football with his own issues John McGinn when he was going out out of contract at St Mirren got that freak injury when he got speared by Stephen Thompson and then had to sort of reevaluate his career plans and ends up at Hibs but then just takes everything in stride I mean this is a group full of players who've who've done that and I think when you see a guy like David Turnbull when he's had such a serious injury when he was when he was remember he was minutes away from signing for Celtic and then all of a sudden it falls to bits and a weaker character could have crumbled then and could have fallen away and just not gotten back to where he'd been. The fact he's gotten back to that level and arguably gone beyond it is so impressive. And those are exactly the kind of characters you want in a, in a Scotland team. For what Gordon says there, I mean, without getting sort of maybe too flaky or flowery, I guess that's what Scotland is. Like, that's why we sort of view ourselves yeah. as this sort of perpetual Scrappy. underdog. So yeah. When, yeah, when people do stuff like that, when they, they would rise from the bottom and they pick themselves up, and that just makes us fall in love with them even more. Mm-hmm. And it does feel at the moment this is a team that kind of represents us on the pitch more so than the past, well, my lifetime probably. Um, so I completely agree with that. They're likeable characters mm-hmm. and it helps that they're pretty good at football too at the moment. And that's what they said in the night, didn't, <laughs> on the night in, in Belgrade. That was, they didn't do it the easy way, they did it the Scottish way. So, I mean, yeah. that kind of tells yeah. you what you need to know. So, just adding someone like David Turnbull, and I remember being completely, massively impressed by that documentary and just seeing his story. And just, that's the guy who's same age as me. And I, I, I don't know if I could, I could have dealt with something like that if I, if I was about to seal a move to the, the, <laughs> the Premiership champions and such a promising career ahead of me and then get sidelined like that for so many months I, I don't know if I, I would be able to maintain just that same hunger that same desire uh, it would definitely affect me a lot more than it affected David Turnbull so I think having him at least present in that squad come June because it's fairly fairly easy to predict that he'll be there in March like you said Gordon and he'll probably play against the Faroe Islands and start but I think even having him included in, in June will be able to spar the other players on who might not have had the same setbacks but they can kind of see Turnbull there and say well if this guy's come back from what he's had to what he's had to deal with that kind of shows his own character and they're going to be elevated by that so I don't know I think I think he'd just be a fantastic presence to have around and like Sean said it's very very good that it's very helpful that he's very good at what he does as well oh, yeah, not bad I think as well like uh, often in the past Scotland have maybe been a little bit reluctant to cap players particularly young, sometimes players are maybe getting to say 22, 23, 24 before they get their first caps. He's 21, you know, if you're good enough, you're old enough. And I think certainly, as we said, his form this season for Celtic, impossible to ignore. He's, he's quite clearly ready to take that step up to international football. Now, there's a player who has, has kind of had his moment in the spotlight as a young player. 
and kind of faded away for a little bit because he went abroad and was then out of the spotlight in terms of Scottish eyes. But this season, his form, like David Turnbull's, has been very, very hard to ignore. And that's Ryan Gold. Now, it's a difficult situation with Ryan Gold, especially because you would imagine him coming in and almost playing a direct competitor to David Turnbull and his, like, for that other kind of spot on the bench as the attacking midfield player. But from what we've seen, again, his versatility speaks volumes for him because he can kind of play anywhere across the front and has done for his side. I, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this, but is it Ferenczi? Am I, am I right in saying that? Sean Stones I'll go with that. <laughs> Ferenczi, well, potentially something like Portuguese that. Portuguese isn't great. No, it's really not great. Uh, but he's kind of played out wide, he's played through the centre, he's played kind of all over the place. So, And again, his goal contribution has been fantastic. And it's been so much so that his old club sport in Lisbon are now looking to try and bring him back. So, again, can Ryan Gold be ignored? Do we see him making the bigger squad for the uh, World Cup qualifiers? And then could he potentially go on to impress Clark enough to warrant a call-up in June? I would love to see it. You would absolutely love to see it. I mean, I think with Rangold, I think there has maybe been an element of sort of out of sight, out of mind. The fact mm-hmm. that he's been away in another country, you know, it's not been as easy to follow him or see his games uh, as often. And then obviously the fact that he had that loan spell at Hibs where for whatever reason, it just didn't really work out for him at Hibs. And I think a lot of people were very quick to say, right, that's it. He's done. He's, he's, he's not coming back and he's not going to impress. He does seem to have massively hit on an excellent run of form at Firenze in, in Portugal. And, you know, you've got to bear in mind, the Portuguese top flight is a really serious league, mm. you know? I mean, if you look at... So one, one of the things I've, I look into sometimes is that, so the, the, the new immigration system for players coming to the UK. So they've got, they've got a new sort of points-based system, effectively, since right. Brexit that for, uh, for foreign players coming in. And what they've done is they've, they've taken all the leagues around the world and they've put them in different tiers. So basically that determines how many points you get and how likely you are to be allowed to move to the country. So the top tier, tier one, that's your sort of, your other big five leagues. So Bundesliga, Liga and Serie A, La Liga. Tier two, that's where you find the Portuguese uh, mm. Liga Nos. So, I mean, there is a second tier league in Europe. So, and the fact that he's playing so well there, I mean, the website who scored that sort of aggregate statistics for mm. players, you know, they've got him basically as the fourth highest rated player in the country with the only guys above him playing for your big, your big clubs like mm. Sporting and, Benfica so the fact he's impressing that much playing for a team that's fighting relegation you're right his form was impossible to ignore I mean he's 25 26 now you do kind of wonder if he's not going to get a call up now when is he ever going to get a call up Gordon I guess I want to ask you um, before I get on to my point about Ryan Gold is um, I saw a thread on Twitter today I think it was sort of started off by Joe Sked of, of the Terrace uh, sort of talking about Ryan Gold and uh, people have some people's criticism of Ryan Gold's form this season is he's got seven goals but a few of them are from the spot or he's got four assists <laughs> or from set pieces. Um, do you think that's is it? Does it maybe inflate how he's been rated by the likes of who scored? Does it sort of put up our perception of him that's slightly false or do you think that um, it's deserved? I think I think that could maybe affect people that maybe just look at it in terms of he's got seven goals, he's got four assists this season. 
that might affect that reading of it. The fact that, yeah, some of them are from set piece deliveries, which to be fair, there's still a, a lot of skill and ability in <laughs> putting in a decent set piece to get a goal. And you that know, applies and, for everyone. Everyone's assists come from set pieces more, all the time. You know, and, you know, penalties are there to be scored. But I think, I certainly think like the who scored, the sort of the overall rating that they give to players are sort of aggregated based on all of their contributions in game. So they're passing, they're defensive, they're tackling, they're running. So, I, the fact that he's rated so highly on that, I think I'd place more weight in that than I would do just in the pure numbers of, of goals and assists. Yeah, what I was going to say was um, I would also just love to see it because Ryan Gold was the first Scottish player I remember thinking could be world class. Yeah. And I know that's a lot of pressure, but so he broke through sort of 2012, 2013, and we were all thinking um, this guy, I mean, all the Every club in the world wanted him, apparently. He was going to be the, like, the mini Messi, all this stuff. Scottish Messi. That doesn't help a young player. Yeah, it was all that stuff. And being sort of 12, 13 at the time, I was thinking, yes, this is, this is brilliant. I can't wait to see a Scottish player be the best player in the world. Um, and obviously gets that big move to sport in Lisbon, where they've obviously got a great pedigree of pushing through um, young talent. I remember seeing him at Rugby Park, Dundee United Thrash, Kelly 4-1, he scored that day. And thinking this guy's really is something special. He was absolutely brilliant. Dundee United fans singing his name, and just to see him peter out like that was so so disappointing. Um, and like Gordon said, when he came back with that loan spell at Hibs, I was really excited to see him back in the country, and it just didn't work out either. And I couldn't put a finger on on why. Um, but to see him in such a high quality league, like Gordon says, for a poor team in that league, I mean, I think without Ryan Gold. Um, they'd be pretty scuppered. I don't think they'd be, have much chance of staying in that division. They really are. He's their talisman as such. And um, he's still so young and there's still so much time in his career. It's great to see that it seems to be getting kick-started now. Um, it would be interesting to see if he gets a big move in, in the summer. But I think uh, the most important yeah. thing is to see him in the Scotland shirt. I think that'd be very exciting. No, definitely. I, th- I, th- I think, again, you know, it, it plays into what we were talking about about David Turnbull. The fact that mm-hmm. he made that big move that didn't work and obviously he would have hoped he would have had the hopes and dreams that he'd be the star star player for sporting then it didn't happen and then he got loaned out and then all that jazz and the fact that he's overcome those hurdles you know again that's about the mentality thing so the fact that he's he is impressing so much this season is almost all the more impressive the fact that he has he's had to overcome these mental hurdles and come back um the only worry for me and this would just break your heart is that right now it would seem like there could be an issue with travel restrictions and COVID. Mm. You know, the fact that when it came to November's games, that's why kind of Johnny Russell, Lewis Morgan, just they weren't really considered at all because for them to come and then quarantine and then come out of quarantine and join the squad, it just would have been too complicated. So you you hope and pray this doesn't happen because as I said, as I said earlier, if he can't get a call up now, when is he ever going to get a call up yeah. for Scotland based on how the season he's had? So if COVID were to put a stop to it, you'd be devastated for him. I, I hadn't even considered that, to be honest, because the, the, the way I've kind of always seen international football, you'd have, say, France, for example, you'd, on, you'd only have maybe about five, six members of the French national team coming from France to go mm-hmm. into a French, French camp, and you would imagine players coming from Spain, players coming from England, Italy, wherever they would be, all flying in from all over the world. Rangel would potentially be the only one out with the home nations to be flying back in. So it would just, yeah. for the sake of one player, I just hope, hope it isn't the case. And I hope <laughs> we do get the chance to see him 
for form because I'm the exact same as you, Sean. When that when that those kind of headlines started going around and seeing oh the Scottish Messi, I just remember thinking that's good for us. We don't really produce <laughs> level of players. I'll have some of that. hundred <laughs> percent. Take that all day long. We don't produce these level of players very often. And then as soon as he kind of moved to sport and, and it didn't work for him, I was like, ah, oh, no, that, that's a shame. That didn't work out. But yeah. com- comes back to Scotland thinking, oh, Ryan Gold, <laughs> he's been away for a while. Didn't work out, goes back. And then you start hearing his name again this season, thinking, oh, what, what, what's he doing now? Oh, he's actually doing well. <laughs> oh, this is good. This is what we're expecting from him. So it just does completely play into those characters that we've talked about. And Gordon, you're exactly right. It's, it's a very similar situation to Turnbull, just this constant setbacks and now finally being able to showcase his clear and obvious ability and now is in line to be a part of one of the most positive points of recent history for this team. So... And I'm just, I'm just kind of worried he's overlooked, to be honest, just because there are a number of other players in that position. Yeah. I don't, I don't well, again, again, like like we said, the, the, the fact that you're looking at such an inflated squad in March that you would hope to think that there's more places for guys like that, uncapped players who, who have got a chance of getting it. I mean, I, I do feel that given... Looking at the Scotland squad right now under Steve Clark, you do feel like we're a team built on a system rather than a group of players built on the success of the individual. So I feel like Clark will be very keen that if there are going to be any uncapped players that they are involved in March to sort of get involved in training, to understand how the team work, because I just, I don't feel confident that if a guy isn't involved in March, I don't see how they're then going to be involved in June. I, just, I don't see. I don't think Clark's the kind of manager that would take a punt, especially when, if it's going to be a 23-man squad in June. He'd take a punt on an uncapped player that hasn't trained with the squad yeah. through many training camps. I just, I struggle to see that. No, I completely agree. And that's why I'm becoming more and more concerned about the next player I was going to get onto and his inclusion because I'm worried he might not even make the make the extended squad uh, for the. World Cup qualifiers purely for the fact that he is not playing in a team week in, week out, and that and that's Billy Gilmore. Now, I, I feel like I do have bias towards Billy Gilmore because you do. Aside from being a Chelsea fan myself, he's from my part of the world. He's a, he's South Ayrshire born and bred, so I feel like I do have that kind of connection connection to him. Can I say that without sounding a bit strange? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> But he's just kind of doing what every kid from South Ayrshire growing up would have wanted to do. Go on and make a mark at one of the best... Go from Rangers, go to Chelsea. Yeah, exactly. That's that's very Ayrshire, actually. (laughs) And it it, it really annoyed me, to be honest, that he didn't go out on loan in January. And fair play to the new manager coming in because he's seen his obvious quality and said that he's the fourth man behind... Jorginho and Golo Kante and Mateo Kovacic, but again, he's the fourth man. I think fourth if, man in a two-man midfield. Fourth man in a two-man midfield, which is a real concern. And when you yeah. want to be playing as much as you physically can, ahead of a as big a summer and as big an occasion as this, you need to be playing every week. And I, I don't think he has much of a look in anymore, which is a shame because the quality is there to see, to be honest. And I think even if you kind of saw him once, uh, you would be able to see that he was—he's been the best player on the pitch for Chelsea on a number of different occasions. 
Yeah, Billy Gilmore, I, there was certainly a period over Christmas there that I was growing more convinced by the week that he would be involved in March. I, I think that's gone now, to be honest. But do you know what? Honestly, I don't think that's a bad thing right now. I mean, you do have to bear in mind, he's 19 years old. You know, yeah. he, he has achieved a hell of a lot already. You know, he's come a long way. He's not the finished article yet. You know, you also have to remember just how many promising young players have gone to that club and have gone out on loan yeah. season after season, never gotten close to the first team and then drifted away or been sold for profit or whatever, you know, the, the business model that they follow. So the fact that Billy Gilmore has even been getting close to the first team squad and getting minutes that shows an incredible progress as a young player, mm -hmm. you know, but when it comes to the national team, he's only played 129 minutes this season and it's really not looking like he's going to add many more minutes between now and March. I think, I think he was maybe a little bit unlucky. The fact that Tuchel came in with about a week to go in the transfer window. I think if Tuchel had come in maybe at the beginning of January, he might've had longer to assess the squad, made it more clear that, Billy Gilmore maybe wasn't going to get many more minutes this season. I think a loan would have been realistic. Um, I think even perhaps maybe looking into next season, a loan might be a good idea. You know, if he goes to a decent ball-playing side in the Championship, perhaps, or even low end of the Premier League, mm -hmm. I think he could have a lot of success. You know, he's only going to turn 20 about a day or two before we kick off the Euros. Yeah. So he's still a phenomenally young player. Um, I think you're absolutely right, though, Jack, that you watch him play and it's very clear that he is a special talent. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to overinflate him. I don't want to mm -hmm, overspeak about him because you know we just spoke about the whole mini Messi thing just being a millstone round Ryan Gold's neck. But you watch Billy Gilmore play, and there's something almost quite Spanish-like about yeah. you know you, almost like the way that Guardiola's midfielders for Barcelona, the way that they, they would all constantly be checking their shoulders so that when they would take the ball in, their first touch would always be into space. And it would always look like they had all the time in the world to pick their pass and play it. And Billy Gilmore's got that ability. You know, he does that every game. You very rarely see him be hurried on the ball when he takes in a pass. So he's a special player. He does unique things as a Scottish footballer. He, he's, his time will come, but his time's not now. Yeah, I think yeah. I, mean, I was maybe a little bit sceptical when that sort of fanfare went up after those games against Liverpool and remind me Jack it was Everton, another Everton, good game. Everton, Everton yeah um, about this time last and, year yeah exactly yeah and it was just it was so and yes he was sensational but there was so much sort of immediate chat about wow look at Billy Gilmore's finally getting minutes we're finally seeing him he's fantastic and you know like we said we don't want to put that pressure on him and I was I think we were all sort of waiting with bated breath to see if this uh, loan would happen this window. It was kind of, it's on, it's off, it's on, it's off. Uh, but like Gordon was sort of alluding to, if Thomas Tuchel only has a week and then he does let Gilmore go and then he gets a couple of injuries, people are asking him, well, why did you send Gilmore on loan? Mm. So it's the safer option for him as the club manager to keep him there, which is obviously going to be his priority when he's coming into a new job. So that makes complete sense. And um, when we are talking earlier about not having maybe an out-and-out out number six. Billy Gilmore is kind of a number six, but like Gordon was saying, a far more sort of technically able yeah. six. He's not one who's going to break up play or stop. I think he can do that, but that's not his game. It's yeah. dictating the play. It's uh, getting his foot on the ball, getting his head up and uh, just sort of 
he seems to see it all in front of him. Like you said, it's it's like time stands still. Sort of plays in slow motion, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a, a great prospect, but I think um, a lot of people were sort of really pushing for him at that run over Christmas to sort of go, maybe he should be in the squad. I think that the right decision would be hang back just now. We've got a yeah. lot of established options and then just see where he goes because I think you chuck him into Scotland squad, people say even just as an option because he's such a good talent, get him to know it. I don't think that's it's not the right time. I just think that give him another couple of seasons, get him consistent minutes and we'll see an even better version of Billy Gilmore who can be a sort of great yeah. tool for Scotland. Yeah. I think I think as well some, something that we've done we've been so guilty of over the years, and may, maybe that's just because we've been so starved of successes that we've latched on to certain players at certain times and thought, right, they're the answer, they're the key, they're going to solve everything for us, you know, and we've just demanded that they be included, and then when they go in and then things don't change overnight, we're suddenly like, right, no, get rid of him, he's finished, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, guys like like Oliver Burke when he first came through when he went to. Uh, when he was at Forest, they went to Leipzig. We were like, right, he's our Gareth Bale. We'll play him every game and we'll be great. You know, when Jordan Rhodes was scoring untold numbers of goals in the, the EFL, right, he's going to score all the goals for us. Get him in. And then when he didn't score in, for a game, in a game for Scotland, it was like, right, we'll get him out again. And I just, I, I, my worry would be that you throw Billy Gilmore into a game for Scotland. And if he isn't the next coming of Xavi and Iniesta combined, people would want to hound him out. And yeah. that's that's just not helpful for anybody. So I think Sean's absolutely right. I think you bring him into squads, you get him into training, and then he doesn't play in the matches. And then in the next squad, maybe he gets 15 minutes off the bench. You build it up gradually, slowly. Then maybe he, he starts a friendly. We take our time with him, you know? Yeah. Because like I said, he's 19 years old. It's like there's, there's literally no rush at all. Especially when you don't need to. Like I guess with yeah. the likes of Ollie Bark. Maybe we did want that creative spark. We were looking at Wales and going, yeah. they've got that. They've got that one talent who can win them a game. We need that Ollie Burke or we don't we score many goals. goals. Chuck them in. Like the point yeah. you're, you're making there, but we have, I think the whole basis of this podcast, we have lots of very good <laughs> midfielders. So I don't think we need to push Billy Gomer into it, like you said. Take the time and we'll, I think we'll reap the benefits for it. Yeah. I think a lot of the reason why people were pushing so heavily was because of just his cool head under pressure, Billy Gilmore, because I think I'm right in saying every competition he's made his debut in for Chelsea, he has been man of the match on, on his debut. So but when you're talking about the occasion, he, he's, he's not really flustered by a big occasion, but the point you made about getting him in training is massive because yeah. how long had he been training with the first team before he made his debut in the FA Cup of the Premier League? several weeks and he was getting accustomed yeah. to the style of playing the system that he'd be entering if you throw him in for one camp and then he doesn't hit the mark then it's not looking likely even at that point so I think completely agree it, w- it would be a case of letting, letting him get some more club minutes under his belt and then start considering him for for the future but it's a, it's a nice thing to it's a nice problem to have because we know we know we've got at the moment, a very, very talented young footballer uh, that's just kind of waiting for the right moment to for us to pluck out of the pluck out of his uh, club side. There, well, there were... well, this is it. I mean, I think certainly like that was something that Gordon Strachan was very, very good at while he was Scotland manager. You know, you looked at almost every squad he would call up. There'd be one or two guys that were effectively there for experience. You know, they were there to train with the team. 
day in, day out for the full week. They'd be on the bench. They probably wouldn't get on, but that was okay. You know, that's all part of the development. It's part of the squad and the staff getting to know the new player and the new player getting to know the squad and the staff. And that's a way of building together. So I think that process, that pathway is there for Billy Gilmore. And I think it should be. No, absolutely. Uh, there were a couple of other just kind of less buzzed about players that I was wanting to mention just before we kind of tried to nail down a final three. Uh, I mean, Sean, Sean, we were talking about a couple of stats before, like earlier today and we were talking about how many goals uh, David Turnbull had scored for Celtic. Lewis Ferguson at Aberdeen, despite the fact his club's on a goal drought, has scored more goals than David Turnbull this season. Yeah, a lot of them penalties. Um, and I think True. that... Um, yeah, I mean, Lewis Ferguson is another good, talented player, but um, I definitely think his future lies at the 21s just now. I mean, when, like we said, he's got so many good options. Um, and his side is struggling, we know that. So, yeah, I get what you're saying, that he's sort of, if you look at that metric of goals, Ooh. Lewis Ferguson's on paper having a better season than David Turnbull, but that doesn't... Um, I don't think that you're saying that does tell the story, I just think that it, it certainly doesn't, so... Um, You'd think that I Ferguson's guess. played a lot more games this season, surely. Yeah. Ferguson's been in the team pretty much done, since yeah. the start of the season. Absolutely. Whereas Turnbull only sort of came in in December. So. Definitely. And then the only other player that I'd kind of even thought about mentioning just... I can, he almost kind of went under the radar for so long, then he scored against Kilmarnock. Uh, Alan Campbell as well, because he kind of seemed to come through... Same time as David Turnbull and Motherwell fans at the time were saying, oh, this is brilliant. Our midfield's unbelievable. We've got two really, really bright young attacking midfielders. Turnbull left, went on and to Celtic. And then this season, Motherwell have just kind of had a fairly, fairly tough time of it, to say the least. Alan Campbell, I think, again, is a player that I've seen talk about. But personally, I would still stick him in the under-21s. I don't know what you guys would think about that. Because I think it's, again, just too much quality ahead of them in, in the running for those limited positions. Yeah, I think I would definitely agree with that. I mean, good grief, the, the competition for places is so unbelievably fierce. Um, that, yeah, unless he hits on a, an incredible hot streak between, I think it was he mm. scored last weekend, didn't he? But if he hits an incredible hot streak between now and March and maybe a couple of guys gets injured, you never know what can happen with football. But uh, I, I think he's got a lot of guys ahead of him right now. And there's plenty of uh, sort of competition in the 21s as well. I mean, if yeah. Gilmore makes that step up, he's only done that, I think, once so far in the 21 squad. You've got Ross McCrory, Lewis Ferguson, um, David Turnbull has been involved in that squad for a long time. And of course, uh, Alan Campbell, like we're saying there, um, I think that Scott Gilmore's had a hard time sort of trying to figure out how to include them all. He seems to sort of put players in weird positions at times and it's it, it's a, a tough a good problem to have but a tough problem to have the 21s have been a were slightly disappointing towards the end there so i think that um they as a sort of group need to reassess and figure out what's best for them going forward before they can really be considered and are very very good central midfield for the first team no absolutely Right, let's try and nail on three, three midfielders that we would. I guess, want Jack, I'll just start. ask Gordon before we, we properly nail this down is we spoke about consistency of selection. What's the cut off point? So we're saying John Fleck's not had a good season. Yep. David Turnbull's having a good season, for example. Is this mm-hmm. one of the times where we can say, because as much as you want to stick consistency, you can't stick with players for the sake of it and you can't stunt 
good players' growth. So is this the time to go? What what's the line you draw and say, right, he's out, he's in? I think for me, the consistency of selection argument, I think it it starts and ends with the starting eleven. I think we have okay. come to develop a fairly first choice starting eleven. You know, mm-hmm. I think when we, and I think I think the real the real sign of that was that when we had that podcast in November we went through who we expected to be the starting 11 in Belgrade and we got everything. I'm pretty sure we got 11, right. You know, and you know, we're, we're, we're no experts, but you were no, we're no, we're no mind readers, but that's just what Steve Clark had been developing as a first choice starting 11. So I think when it comes to Jack McGregor McGinn, I think their, their positions in the squad are absolutely solid gold. I think they're yeah. secure completely unless one of them gets injured or, you know, their form completely drops off a cliff for their clubs other than that, they're in the squad. When it comes to the players around them who have been in squads regularly, I think if their form drops off, I think they're more at risk of dropping out. So your Kenny McLean's, your John Flex, those guys are more at risk of being usurped. That makes sense. No, absolutely. So I suppose that kind of makes it fairly easy in suggesting that the midfield three that would probably make the most sense uh, kind of, that we would want as starters would be that three of McGinn ahead of McGregor and Jack. Or yep. is there anyone else that you would want to throw in for a, for a potential start as an outside option? I think the, the, the only alternative that I would suggest, so, so bearing in mind that that Jack, McGregor, McGinn, you've then got one-off Fraser or Christie yeah. partnering yeah. Lyndon Dykes further forward. The only alternative would potentially be if you're putting McTominay into midfield, maybe it's Jack McTominay McGinn. That was something that I wrote down. Yeah, I do think that as much as Ryan Jack hasn't had too much of a consistent run of games, I mean, I saw him score an absolute belter at the weekend against <laughs> Kelly, so if you can yeah, pull that back. off at the Euros, that wouldn't be too bad. <laughs> yeah. um, it's on the bench for Rangers in the Europa League, but I do think that it's, you've got to use him back in because he's coming in, so I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, Ryan Jack is definitely an option. I think Callum McGregor would be the one I would be most worried about. I think if yeah, you get that. rid of one of those three, it probably would be Callum McGregor, but, and it would only be for Scott McTominay or at a stretch, maybe putting McGinn back one and David Turnbull comes in there is probably the best option for me. But definitely that, that midfield, midfield three in Belgrade will have my heart forever. So you would have to do <laughs> uh, something very wrong to, to muck, muck that up. That's always going to be our midfield three. <laughs> Just yes, it. keep it together. I, I, I think the I think I think the the only potential option other than that is that I thought of was that if you were going to go with that sort of the sort of box midfield, maybe with Jack and McTominay at the back of it, and maybe McGinn and Armstrong sort of playing mm-hmm. off each other behind a striker. That was the only other slightly alternative shape that I, I thought of. Do you worry about somebody not being close enough to Dykes in that formation? Do you think that we would lose some of that? Well, I, th- I think it depends on how on how those. I, th- I think there'd be a huge amount of responsibility on mm. McGinn and Armstrong if they are the sort of the two eights to stay close. Like their their first and last roles in that team would be to link up with Lyndon Dykes. So you're right; the the system would would stand or fall based on that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is what we do. This is literally all speculation until we see that first team march out against the Czech Republic. So, that, oh, McGinn and Jack play regardless, and then a combination of one of McTominay, McGregor, 
Armstrong or Turnbull, really, and then we'll, we'll hit and hope and we'll see, we'll yeah. see whoever we get in the knockouts. <laughs> play I for think, pens. Oh, absolutely. Play for pens. I think that's just about going to wrap us up on this uh, Energy Sports special. Uh, thank you very much to everyone for listening. Uh, and a massive thank you to yourself, Gordon, for coming back on and spending this bit of time talking about Scotland with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. No, no worries. Thank you so much for having me back. Absolutely. Uh, for anyone listening that hasn't heard or, or doesn't know you as of yet, where, where would they be able to find you? Yeah, so um, I am uh, thetartanscarf.com or at thetartanscarf on Twitter and Instagram. Fantastic. Uh, Sean, what about yourself, just in case anyone on Energy Sport doesn't know who you oh, are? Honestly, for me, I'm not used to this. Thanks, Jack. <laughs> um, I'm at Sean McGill8 and also, of course, follow uh, Energy Sports at ENRG Sport. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm at Jack underscore Donnelly because I've got the least followers out of anyone here. So I could, I could use the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> so once again, a massive thank you to Gordon for joining us. A massive thank you to Sean as well for jumping on. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the Energy Sport podcast feed wherever you get yours to make sure you don't miss any of the specials or our usual football shows. Follow us over on Twitter at Sean Said at ENRG Sport for all of our sports content. Definitely go and follow Gordon at The Tartan Scarf and make sure to check out the website. There's some fantastic stuff on there. Uh, until we see you next time, my name's Jack Donnelly. This has been another Energy Sport podcast and thank you very much for listening. <laughs>